0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Happy Daylight Savings! Some of you enjoyed... An hour more of sleep, and some of you enjoyed an hour more of child care. We had an hour more of child care in my house. Oh, or work. If you work during this, oh my goodness, I hope you got paid overtime for that. Okay, so um, we have been in a series recently called Jesus in the Bible, and we've been focusing on how the Old Testament foreshadows Jesus. Today we're going to take one week off and pick that back up next week. I believe we'll be looking at Jesus the Lamb um, from the Old Testament and the New Testament. But this week we're going to take a brief uh, break from that because I want to... This is uh, this is me trying to be a pastor. I've been trying for years. I'm, I'm going to figure this out at some point, but... I know the time and the place in which we live and it seems like it would be irresponsible of me to not from time to time give some like direct guidance and leadership for how we w- we are going to live in Philadelphia in 2020. So this week we're going to talk about how to watch over our hearts in 2020 and I you know I hope that I'm wrong but I don't know if you guys realize just when the Just because we uh, roll the clock over to January 1st, 2021, doesn't necessarily mean everything's going to just disappear and be perfect, right? We all know that. I know everyone's like, oh, I can't wait till 2020 is over. Well, uh, (laughs) I can't wait till there's like, you know, the division and the hatred and the fear in people's heart is over. And I'm not sure that that's going to change on New Year's Eve. So, until we take some practical steps to address these issues in our own hearts and in the hearts of others, uh, that's when change is actually going to take place. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in, okay? All right. Jesus, would you show us how to keep watch over our hearts in in 2020? Um, Would you show us how to love you? Would you show us how to love others? Would you help us to understand your word as we look at it this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Show and tell. This is my compass. Uh, when I was 10 or 12, something like that, my dad showed me or began to show me how to use a compass. We would go into the woods for to hunt. I used to hunt. I owned a gun when I was 12. Um, and so we would go into the woods and we, he would take his compass. I didn't have a compass at the time, although I, I bought a compass when I moved to Philly because that was before... GPS is on phones and things like that. And uh, in fact, it was kind of like the height of MapQuest when you printed out directions. But I had a compass to help me figure out where I was going. And I still use this compass sometimes because I like to go camping or go into the woods. So when my dad taught me how to use a compass, you know, his instructions were along these lines. You want to, before you go into the woods, orient yourself. You know, stay, get your compass out, look at it. To, Try to figure out which way is north, which way is south, east, west, all that stuff, and then whichever direction you head into the woods, you got to come out the opposite. If you go in west, which way do you got to come out? East, right? And you also want to keep your eyes open for landmarks. You know, is there, a, is there a big tree that you can remember on your way out? Is there a rock or a stream or, some, or a farm or something like that that you can look at? So, the compass, you know, helps us orient ourselves in. Like I said, if you go in one direction, you come out the opposite direction, and that's the beauty of a compass. I also later learned how to use things like the sun and the stars to navigate a little bit, um, but although I haven't used those in a very long time. I was a Boy Scout uh, for one year, won a trophy, and I was like, I'm going to go out on top. <laughs> so uh, the compass, super helpful but a couple of years ago, I bought a compass, not this one, and it was broken. It was defective. Do you know how annoying a defective broken compass is? Because you keep thinking to yourself, okay, I know that New Jersey is over there and it's east, but this thing is saying that's west. Something is off here. And if I follow this thing, I'm going to be totally lost, right? I mean, it, compasses are really helpful when they work. When they're broken, they aren't helpful. They can also be actually manipulated by magnets you might have already known this but if you put a magnet too close to a compass it goes nuts i actually have a 30 second video i want to show you from youtube it's going to be up on the screen this is just a 30 second video of someone sliding a magnet around a compass there's no audio to this so it might be a little boring to you but watch how this compass is how easily it's manipulated you can get it to say anything so if you uh were near magnets when this you know when you were using a compass it could really jack up your orientation and uh, wouldn't calibrate your compass correctly see everyone see that okay see how easily that is manipulated so the compass super helpful when it works totally disorienting when it doesn't work and when you don't know where you're going but you know you have to go somewhere you're supposed to follow the compass right so we all have a compass. It's right here in our chest. It's called the heart. And you have probably been told hundreds or thousands of times to follow your heart. Anyone ever been told follow your heart? I feel like that's a very popular piece of advice these days. Here's the thing. Just like a compass, your heart can be broken. Just like a compass, your heart can be manipulated by unseen forces. Just like a compass, your heart can tell you that this this way is up when really it's down. And the prophet Jeremiah actually said about the human heart that it is deceitful and desperately sick, and who can understand it? So this is the situation. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, because Adam and Eve rebelled against God and took advice from Satan, They entered the entire human race into sin. And so we are all born in sin. We're born sinful. A way to illustrate that would be to say we are born with malfunctioning, broken hearts, malfunctioning, broken compasses. We want to follow our hearts, but our hearts are broken. Our hearts are manipulated. Our hearts are disoriented. And as Jeremiah said, it is deceitful. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart is irrevocably sick in your own power only jesus can change a broken heart or jesus can uh, change your heart at all so here's the thing about following your heart that has gotten a lot of people into a lot of trouble hasn't it there's a lot of pain that has come from following the manipulations of the emotions and the and the pain of a broken heart right there's a lot of relationships that have been damaged that way. There's a lot of uh, pain and and energy that has been spent to following the desires of a broken, uh, manipulated heart. And so we're all born with this malfunctioning, broken compass in our chest that we call our heart. It's deceitful, it's wicked. Jeremiah says, who can even understand it? So when the Bible says who can understand it, it's deceitful and wicked. I'm not sure we should necessarily always go around telling people to follow their heart. I think it's better to say follow Jesus or it's better to say follow scripture. And the only way that your heart will be recalibrated or reoriented is actually by Jesus giving you a new heart. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's... picked up on that we need a new heart uh Moses talked about Moses is the guy well actually Abraham and Moses really talked about circumcision if you remember that and that's kind of a weird thing to talk about well Moses actually said that uh, God would need to circumcise our hearts uh, Ezekiel talked about us having a heart of stone that needs to be made a heart of flesh other prophets talked about a dead heart that would need to be revived and revitalized and how does that happen that happens through Jesus. When we are born with broken, manipulated, fractured hearts, but when we come to Jesus, he gives us a new heart. That's why it says that we are a new creation in Christ. I don't know about you, but when I came to Jesus, I didn't get new fingers. I didn't get new toes. Now, over the years, I've picked up new other things, but uh, what I did get, though, was a new heart. Jesus gave me a heart of flesh. And over, over the years, I have become more acquainted with that heart of flesh. That heart of flesh has become more responsive to Jesus. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, it actually gives us two pictures of what happens when a person comes to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says that the Holy Spirit is placed in our hearts. That's kind of that recalibration that happens. Uh, You know, you aren't born with the Holy Spirit in your heart. You're born again with the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit into your heart that gives you new birth. The theological term for that would be regenerates you. That's the coming of the Holy Spirit into your heart. And 2 Corinthians 3, verses 15 and 16 talk about... uh, this veil that is over the heart of an unbeliever. Anyone that isn't a follower of Jesus has like a, a, a veil or a curtain, something that dims or dampens and it's over the heart so that even when the word of God is read, there's still this dampening effect of this veil. But the Holy Spirit removes that veil off of the heart when a person comes to Jesus. So that veil's removed. So when you come to Christ, all of a sudden your heart is not veiled, it's exposed and Jesus gains access to your heart and your heart begins to respond to Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I want to make it clear, the main idea at the beginning here is we all have these broken, broken compasses that we're born with but in Jesus that compass is restored. So I think if we can think about just how we look at this nice and practically If you're not following Jesus, I'm not sure you can follow your heart. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I think you can trust your heart with him and trust him to lead you in your affections and in your devotions and in your decisions. Does that make sense? So what I want to talk about today is what to do with our heart in 2020. I'm not suggesting that you should be following it because, man, if I followed my heart, I would be following the path of frustration and fear and anxiety and anger right now, right? I I mean, I feel all that stuff in my heart. Thankfully, I have God's word as well as the Holy Spirit to check me and say, listen, uh, those are not the pieces of information you want to take your leadership from right now i could not locate the author of this quote today uh this week as i was looking but there is a, a pastor I, I want to say it's john piper but no one could confirm this who said that the heart is not meant to be followed it is meant to be led your heart is meant to be led by god and so you can only follow your heart so much as you, it's following God. So I'm not suggesting we follow our hearts this, this week, but what I am suggesting is that we still have something to do with our heart. So what do we do with our heart in 2020? We're going to love God with it, and we're going to watch over it. Deuteronomy 6 tells us to love God with our whole heart. Proverbs 4 tells us to watch over our heart because from it flows all of our lives. Now, before I get into why we're going to love God with our heart and why we're going to watch over our hearts, let me tell you why this matters. We need to pay attention to our hearts nowadays. We probably always have, but now we're really aware of it. We also, as a church, have this vision of making disciples that sustain revival. And one of the ways that we make disciples that sustain revival is by pursuing emotional health. We want to be emotionally healthy because, you know, how many of us have forfeited years of spiritual growth Because we had a hissy fit. Because we had a breakdown. You know what I mean? Like five, ten, fifteen years of faithfully following Jesus and then something happens and we just have a tantrum. And fifteen years of being a good witness at work Fifteen years of praying for someone in your family, fifteen years of learning the Bible, fifteen years of building a ministry, we threw out the window because there was some kind of emotional thing going on in us that we just left unresolved for years and years and years. And something triggered it one day, and we threw everything out the window. And it feels like in a lot of ways we've got to start over. And we see this frequently when when church leaders fall into sin there was some sort of underlying emotional issue that was not addressed. And 15, 20, 25, 40 years of faithfulness or supposed faithfulness uh, gets uh, thrown away because of this undealt with issue, unresolved issue. So if we're gonna make disciples that sustain revival... Who aren't always up and down and back and forth. We're going to have to deal with emotional health. This week has been a, probably a difficult week for many of you. It was a difficult week for me to live in Philadelphia. Any Anyone have any police helicopters flying over their house? Pretty much all of us probably, right? As you guys know, uh, uh, a man was shot by the police this week and um, I know we're still sorting out all the details of that, but people responded to that with looting and violence and all sorts of stuff in the streets and so there's already the frustration and the trauma of uh, Walter Wallace being shot but then there's also the frustration of the trauma of the reaction and response to him being shot and um, I you know it's not very often that the National Guard gets called into your city twice in four months and it shouldn't be very often. It should never happen. But here it's happened to us twice. And I know that that's frustrating. I know uh, I don't like to watch the police report on my phone. Uh, but I did this week. Because I needed to know what's going on in the neighborhood. Um, I, we have security cameras here at the church. I bet probably every 15 minutes I pulled them up. I installed an extra security camera in my house this week. I mean these are you know, we're doing these things. I'm not the only one doing these things because we're nervous, because we're upset, we're not we're not happy with what's going on, right? In addition to the civil unrest, I don't know if it's gotten very much news coverage lately, but there's an election Tuesday. (laughs) Have you heard about this? Yes, it seems every four years, it feels like every 40 minutes, we elect a president in this country. And so that's coming up Tuesday. And I know you guys all know that there's just a ton of drama leading up to that. And I'm not sure that the drama is going to subside after the election. I'm not even sure we're going to know who the president is on Wednesday morning. It may take some time to sort this all out. Uh, And so uh, I've been stockpiling food. Mad Dog 2020, Uh, just, oh, got to like, I'm going to get through this one way or the other. Just kidding. But we have this political stuff that's going on. I'm also tired of, I think we're all tired, getting Corona fatigue, tired of all the restrictions and the news and the, you know, who knows what's accurate anymore. I don't even know, you know, who who to trust and who to listen to anymore. I think people are getting tired of that and fatigued by it. And it's, causing many people to be snippy snippier than normal philly and it's causing people to be snippy it's causing people to even isolate and insulate and become kind of kind of like i don't even want to go out if i have to go to all this trouble if i have to do this and do that and jump through these hoops i just don't even want to go out and that's hurt it's hurting people and it's hurting the community and then finally just to top it all off if, even if it was a normal year, we're going into the fall. We're going into the winter. Many people struggle with seasonal affective disorder. Um, the the le- less uh, daylight, less sleep, the cold. You know, I, I still have this uh, primal urge to hibernate. You know, just like eat as much food as I can and go to sleep for three months, uh, like a bear. And you know that affects people. So man it feels to me like almost a perfect storm of frustrating circumstances and difficult things which is why i want to talk today about what to do with our hearts so the first thing that we're going to do is look at deuteronomy chapter 6. deuteronomy chapter 6 particularly verses 4 and 5 are an ancient jewish well it became an ancient jewish prayer called the shema uh, something that Jewish people to this day still recite every morning and every evening before, before bed. It's a very short passage. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five say this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with our hearts right now? The first thing is we're supposed to love God with it. We're supposed to love God with our heart. This is known as the greatest and foremost commandment. When uh, someone asked Jesus, "Well, what is the, what's the biggest, most important commandment?" This is what Jesus quoted. Going all the way back to Moses in Deuteronomy, Jesus said, "This is the greatest and the foremost commandment. Uh, and essentially, if you can do this, if you can love the God, uh, if you can love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your might, if you can do that, all the other 613 commands come into place. If you can love God with all your heart, you can begin to love your neighbor as yourself. If you can love God with all your heart, you can begin to make sacrifices for. For God, if you can love God with all of your heart, you begin to develop a prayer life. You begin to enjoy worship. If you can love God with all of your heart, you become generous. You begin to share your faith and share the gospel with other people. So we often back into this commandment and I've done it myself. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means, I guess, go to the church, go to church, read the Bible, give money, do all this other stuff. If you do that for 20 years, eventually you'll arrive at love God, (laughs) which is totally backwards. when When we're teaching young followers of Jesus, whether they're chronologically young or just new to the faith, the first thing we should be teaching them is, how do you love God? How do you get to the point where both your affection and your devotion is directed toward Yahweh? And then we'll deal with serving in church, reading the Bible, praying, attending meetings, giving. We'll we'll deal with all that stuff once we've settled the issue of, do you love God? So I think that that should be the discipleship plan is how do we establish love for God? Well, One of the things we do is, uh, based on 1 John 4, 19, says we love God because he loved us. Did you know that a relationship with God was not your idea? It was his idea. He actually initiates this whole process, that he's been the one chasing after you. He's been the one trying to get your attention for years. He's been the one who uh, sent Jesus, left the comforts of heaven, suffered on earth died on your behalf that was not your idea you didn't come up with this bright idea one day pray to God like Lord I was thinking you know what if we reconciled this was God's idea God says I'm going to take all the action of reconciliation all you have to do is respond I'm going to initiate it you respond now another implication of First John four, uh, we love uh, others where we love because He first loved us, is that we need to lead people into encounters with God's love. We need to create environments where people experience God's love. I think the average person knows God loves everyone. In fact, I, I hear this all the time: God loves everyone. God loves everyone. God loves everyone. Right? Does everyone love God? That's the follow-up question. Does everyone love God? I mean, because if God loves everyone, but not everyone loves God, what is the rationale for those people that don't love God in return? If they believe God loves them, but they choose not to love him, what's going on? What are they, what's, what's the thought process? What are, what's the, maybe the pain that prompts that? Like, what's going on here? So we have to not just... Have a cliche: God loves everyone, but actually experience God's love. We have to have a firsthand encounter with the love of God, where it's not just an idea up in our head, but it moves down into our heart. I remember a particular day when I was a senior in college, just went through this really weird experience and was kind of actually like really frustrated and angry about something. And just in this weird moment of, uh, I was by myself praying, just like all of a sudden I felt God's love for probably the, the first memorable time in my life. And it changed, like that experience changed my behavior. It was so real that it changed the way I treated other people. And it changed the way that I functioned as an individual and as a follower of Jesus. But we have to Instead of just telling people God's love, God loves them, can we create experiences and environments where people actually experience the love of God? Because while God's love for us is objectively true at all times, when it becomes subjectively experienced, personally experienced, that's what really changes us. Here's what, here, let me illustrate that. If I go up to a stranger and I say, God loves you, does, that, does me telling them that necessarily change them? No They have to have a firsthand experience with that So it seems that the better thing Or I could do both here This is not mutually exclusive Is me to show them God's love Not simply proclaim it I will proclaim it But also show it So that they can experience If I'm screaming at them God loves you You sinner You filthy rotten maggot You know Okay, they're hearing the truth of God's love, but they're not having experience with God's love in the moment, right? So it, it takes an experience with God's love for us to really have this sink in. Now, what does it mean to love God with all of your heart? I want to look at this uh, three different ways. It means to love God with all of our affection and devotions and with perfection. That perfection part I'm going to have to explain affections and devotions. Uh, to love God with all of our heart means to love him with our affections, which is our feelings and our emotions. I wonder, when you think about God, is there any emotional response there? Or is it all up here? When you think about God, is there any stirring in your heart like of gratitude, of love, of excitement? Is, is there any emotional response? Because you, his intent is that there is affection that there are feelings and there are emotions that are related to this like when you read through the psalms or other portions of scripture and you see these deep experiential uh things that people are writing do you connect with any of that you don't i mean i don't know anyone that connects with all of it but do you connect with any of it does any of it prick your heart and cause you to just take a step back and pause like ooh, that one hit me Does any of it cause you to actually weep? Does any of it cause you to repent and change your way? Does any of it cause you joy when you read about his return or miracles? Do you you get excited when you read those things? I mean, is there an emotional response? To love God with all of our heart means to love him with our affection. It also means to love him with our devotion. Devotion uh, is referring to our decisions and our commitments. Do you have devotion for God? Are you loving him with your decisions? You know, I think we would all say, love isn't just a feeling, it's also a commitment. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. It's the feelings, but also the commitments. It is a decision. Are you loving God with the commitments that you make to him? Are you loving God with the decisions that you make day after day? I heard a statistic this week that the average person makes 35,000 decisions a day. Okay. Are you loving God with those? When you decide what you're going to do in the morning, when you decide what you're going to watch, when you decide what you're going to think, when you decide what you're going to feel, when you decide what you're going to post, when you decide what you're going to say to someone at work, are you loving with uh, God with those decisions? And are you loving God with the commitments that you make? Finally, we love God with all our heart perfectly. Now, this one I think needs explained because uh, I don't mean Perfect in the sense of you never make a mistake. None of us are going to be perfect. I don't. I don't believe that we uh, eradicate all of our sin on this side of uh, death. Uh, Ultimately, we we struggle until we die, and then we live with Jesus in heaven. So I don't believe that you're going to eradicate your sin, but I do believe that you can be sanctified and. Not, just, not experience eradication, but experience habitation, where you're abiding in Jesus, dwelling in Jesus. So when I say perfection, I don't mean you're never going to make a mistake. I don't mean you're never going to do anything wrong. I mean God has all of your heart, like you have perfectly given it to him. You'll make mistakes, you'll screw up, you'll have bad days, I guarantee it. But have you given God your whole heart? Are you experiencing or practicing wholehearted devotion to God or are you just giving him parts of your heart? Are you just giving him parts of your lives? The NIV's Honor and Study Bible describes loving God with all of our heart this way. It says, what is involved here is not a love that can be reduced to a feeling or a sentiment, but a love for God that commands the entire personality. And giving over your entire personality. And personality it doesn't just mean like what music you like and you know, your favorite color. Your personality is your entire being. All of you, are you giving it over to God? So the first thing we want to do with our hearts in 2020 and 21 and 22 and 23 is to love God with our heart. This is the first and foremost commandment. This is, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To love God with all of our heart and then the second command is like it to love our neighbor as ourselves here's what we're going to do with our heart as well we're going to watch over it in uh, Proverbs chapter four you might have a translation that says guard your heart my translation the NASB says watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life so a translation might say guard your heart. I, I tend to stay away from that because I think that can be misunderstood. If someone has to guard their heart, they might start doing like self-preservation techniques where they don't let anybody in and they don't have any friendships and they don't have any relationships and they call that guarding their heart. It's actually more accurately translated, watch over your heart, which I think implies awareness. Know what's going on under the hood, right? Right? I mean, you guys all know that every now and then there are signs of dysfunction in your life, right? If you don't know what they are, I'll tell you. I got a list on each one of you. Just kidding, I don't have a list, but maybe a mental one. About two weeks ago, I was driving in New Jersey. I was in Cherry Hill, because I like fancy things. And I was driving my really nice um, 2000, Uh, 8 Honda Fit with dents and a scratched bumper and it started shaking like it uh, wasn't I I don't know I didn't know what was going on uh, but I I was like I don't want to do this in another state and I don't want to do this in Cherry Hill because I already have the worst car in the town. I sh- I'm sure of it. This is like where Eagles players live and Phillies players live and, you know, they have Wegmans. And so I'm like, I really, I don't want to break down here because they're just going to think I'm some Philly guy who's, you know, gotten too big for his britches. And so I came right back home, car a-shaking, uh, going over the bridge and it, and I don't know much about cars, but my check engine light was flashing, which I know is bad. If it pops on, that's one thing, but it was flashing, and there were demons coming out of the hood. (laughs) So I I got home. I I actually didn't even come home. I went straight to my mechanic, dropped the car off, and walked home. Now, how did I know that something was wrong with the car? I knew that something was wrong with the car because a light popped on. I knew that something was wrong with the car because it started to shake and it wouldn't idle very well. So while I didn't know exactly what was going on, I was paying attention to the symptoms, right? Watching over your heart, part of that is paying attention to the symptoms in your life. You know, are are you, like, really easily angered? Are you... Can you not be happy for anything... Are you are you even depressed at weddings and the birth of children? You know, like what are what are the symptoms in your life that are telling you what's going on in your heart? Watch over those things. Now, the book of Proverbs is primarily about wisdom. And when we think about wisdom, I think a lot of times we think of the enlightenment of the mind. You're like, I'm gonna think, I'm gonna think smarter thoughts. But you know the The book of Proverbs only talks about your mind being enlightened like three or four times. Over 70 times, it talks about cultivating your heart. And I don't think wisdom is up here so much as it's here. Now, it's both, don't get me wrong, but the way that the book of Proverbs talks about wisdom, it's about cultivating your heart, not necessarily enlightening your mind. It's not necessarily about gaining a bunch of new facts, it's about making sure that your heart is in an emotionally healthy place where you're, you're making wise decisions. Because you know what keeps us from making, when we know what's what, making wise decisions, when our brain says, this is what's right, but our heart says, but I want to do this. And your brain's like, yeah, but this is the thing that's going to work. And your heart's like, I don't care if it works, I want this. So what you got to do is deal with your heart so it stops fighting your brain. I said this during our heart and mind sermon series several years ago that one of the ways that you can measure emotional health is if your heart and your brain aren 't always fighting when your heart and your brain, your heart and your mind are frequently in agreement that 's a good sign but when they 're often fight well, I said it three years ago. I hope you all heard it then okay, good so when they're all when they're when they 're integrated with one another, that is a good sign of emotional health, but when they 're not integrated and they 're Fighting each other—that's a sign that we got to deal with this uh, with this stuff. And and I don't emotional health really isn't even my concern. I just use that term because that's what I think people understand. To me, this is based on First Thessalonians five twenty three, where the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ is going to sanctify us, body, soul, and spirit. So when he talks about sanctifying the soul, that's really what I think this is all about. But when I say soul sanctification, no one. It goes right over everyone's head, so I'll just say emotional health because I think everyone's watched a few Dr. Phil episodes and kind of understands the concept. Now, how do we watch over our heart? The book of Proverbs, chapter four, verse 23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life, but Proverbs 4.23 doesn't tell us how to watch over our heart. It just says that we should, but the rest of the book of Proverbs actually does tell us how to watch over our heart. And I found six different ways. There's probably seven, eight, nine, ten ways that we watch over our heart, but there are six ways just from the book of Proverbs that we watch over our heart that I want to look at really quick before I wrap up. The first is that we fill our heart with God's word. Proverbs 3, 1 says, Do not forget my teaching. Uh, Let your heart keep my commandments. Proverbs 4.21, this is right before we get to watch over your heart, it says, do not let my commandments depart from your sight, keep them in the midst of your heart. So we're to fill our hearts with God's commandment. We do this by meditating on God's word. Meditating on God's word is not the same, th- when you think of the word meditate, you probably think of sitting you know down like this and ohm chanting a mantra or something like that. The purpose of Some people's meditation is to empty their minds. I don't know if they ever fill them back up afterwards. The purpose of biblical meditation is not to empty; it's to fill. You're filling your mind. You're filling your heart with God's word. Uh, The Hebrew word for meditate actually is to like to chew on, and the idea is chewing a cud. Now, I don't think we chew cuds, but an animal that would chew a cud chews on something and then stores it away in its cheek or its stomach and then brings it back up later to chew on it again. So that's how you want to treat God's word. You chew on it and then you store it away and then you bring it back up again later to chew on it again. That's how we meditate on God's word for the purpose of being filled, not emptied. If you do that, it will overflow from you. Instead of your anger overflowing, instead of your anxiety overflowing, God's word will begin to overflow. My suggestion, practical application here would be you're filling your eyes and your ears and your heart with something. It may be social media. It may be the news. It probably should be God's word. I know that it's a lot easier to pull up Facebook or Instagram or uh Twitter than it is to open the Bible. I understand that it's easier, but it's also far less productive. You're being shaped by those things that you put in front of your eyes. So make sure that what you're putting in front of your eyes is godly. And we may all need to take a step back from our use of social media. We may need to take a step back from how much news we watch. I think you should know the news. I just don't think there's ever been a time in human history where we needed 24 hours a day of it. I think we did okay with smaller quantities in the past and so less you know I, I'm not t- going to say this much is appropriate but but if it's having a negative impact on you it's too much and also choosing your sources. So filling our hearts with God's word is one of the ways we watch over it. Secondly, we trust God and we do not participate in anxiety. Proverbs 12:25 says that an anxious heart weighs a person down when a person feels anxious it's almost like they gain 50 pounds it just it makes them heavy it sucks the energy from them it makes everything that they do take more energy and sap the power out of them so that they end up tired and exhausted at the end of a long anxious day but proverbs 3 5 says that we should trust in the lord so rather than letting anxiety be like the the temperature that your heart is set at We want to get rid of anxiety. Understand that there's no biblical precedent for a a person to be anxious in Jesus. The Bible says you're allowed to be angry as long as you don't sin. The Bible says that you can have fear as long as it's directed toward God. There's nowhere where it says anxiety is acceptable which I'm probably gonna step on some toes here, but that leads me to believe anxiety is not just an emotion, it's a sin. We're told not to participate in it. We're told not to have it. Now, I understand that there are other causes of anxiety that might require some medical intervention, and I get that, so can I give you some advice? If it takes a doctor, go see a doctor then. If that's what it takes to get free, then do it. There's no stigma attached to that to, to seeing a doctor and if you need a prescription, get a prescription if that's what you need and then let's beat anxiety by trusting God and putting our faith in him. It weighs us down and and I've shared this story many times. I used to have a huge issue with anxiety until I started writing down everything I was ever anxious about and none of it ever happened. <laughs> if I have this I used to have, I don't have it so much anymore Though it does pop back up every now and then I just always figured Whatever happened I was going to be homeless You know, oh Kendra went over the data on the cell phone bill This is $20 higher I'm not going to be able to pay the mortgage And even though we've made every payment They're probably going to put us on the street I'm going to have three kids and a wife on the street Because we had to watch a YouTube video while roaming and that's where my head goes. Now, it doesn't go there so much anymore, but it used to go there. Every, everything that happened, you lost, you know, someone le- loses some money or something happens, it's always like we're going to be homeless. Well, so I started writing down, or, you know, someone forgets to lock a door, we're going to get broken in, and someone's going to break in and kill the whole family. Like Just like little things. I, ha- I had a master's degree in turning uh, molehills into mountains, you know, just like I, I could be upset about everything and I just figured, you know, if you left the door unlocked, you must, might as well go ahead and kill us yourself. You obviously want us to all die. <laughs> so I started writing these things down and I was like, none of it's happening. These things aren't coming to pass. Why am I upset about this stuff? Or the things that did happen were just smaller you know like nothing nothing major would come of it so i started to see the anxiety was me feeling the pain of stuff that was never going to happen and so that helped me get free of anxiety I almost kill myself on the stage <clears throat> i suggest if that worked for me it might work for you write some stuff down for 30 days and you'll realize boy i really am ridiculous with all the stuff i worry about third thing that we do to keep watch over our heart is aim for joy uh, in Proverbs seventeen twenty two, it says, and I love this verse, and I sing it sometimes. A cheerful heart is good medicine. A joyful heart is good medicine. Proverbs seventeen twenty two. Uh, <clears throat> if you if a lot of times we're tr- we try to figure out what does God want me to feel. Sometimes we actually have this voice in our head. God wants me to feel anxious. That's the feeling of being responsible. God wants me to be afraid. God wants me to be angry. It's righteousness to be angry. Well, Proverbs 17 says, A cheerful heart is good medicine. Romans 14 actually says, The kingdom of God consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I actually think God's goal for your heart is joy. That's what He wants. So it'd be stupid of me to just say, so feel joyful, one, two, three, joy. That's, I know that that's not how it works, but we have to aim at something, don't we? So let's aim for joy. Joy actually has an f- effect on you physically. It says a cheerful heart is good medicine. I think King David's ahead of his time here, or, sorry, Solomon is ahead of his time here, the wisest man in the Old Testament, that joy actually has an f- impact on your health. I know Solomon didn't know that like hormones and enzymes are released and I know that he didn't know that, but he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote this and the Holy Spirit knows how your body is designed and how you're knit together and so joy is actually helpful. The way that you arrive at joy, this is the part that's not so much fun, is through grieving and mourning losses. So God wants you to be joyful, but the world doesn't. And stuff happens to you that steals your joy. And the process that you have to go through then is called grieving or mourning. So when we aim at joy, we have to accept that, okay, so I can't get to joy without grieving everything I've lost. So that when you lose something, a loved one dies, you lose a job, you lose a house a pet, whatever, you lose a sense of security, a sense of safety, a relationship, you lose something. You know that feeling in your heart that's kind of this ache? Yes. And you feel that and it, and it disorients you and you forget that that person's not in your life or you think about that house or job you lost. That ache is called grief. And the way that you go through the process of dealing with that is called mourning. But do you know what happens when you go through the mourning process? Joy, right? Joy comes through mourning. Though the sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in through mourning in the morning. And so that's the process that Jesus takes us through, but we want to aim at joy, not aim at grief. If you aim at grief, you're, you're too short. Now, this is not listed in the Bible, but I do find this to be a helpful tool <clears throat> from a psychiatrist named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross The five stages of grief, I have these memorized. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. You lose something, you lose someone, step one is denial. I can't believe this happened. That's a statement of denial. I can't believe. Then anger. Who's responsible for this? What could have been done differently? Well, actually, excuse me, what could have been done differently is a statement of bargaining. Or we say this, God, take me. Not them. That's bargaining. Denial, anger, bargaining. Then we get into depression. And we think that depression is the final step. And forget about acceptance. Acceptance is the final step. In the words of, well, I probably can't get you all the way to acceptance in one sermon, but in the words of philosopher Michael Scott, if I can get you all depressed today, I'll have succeeded. That's a joke for office fans. Okay, it didn't go very well in the room, but I'm sure it went well at home. These five steps are essential. When we get to acceptance, we begin to experience joy. Acceptance just sounds like this. I'm not going to let this shape my life moving forward. It happened. It was real, but I'm not going to live my life in reaction to it anymore. Life goes on, and I have to live life accepting that this thing has been lost. So aiming at joy. Fourth, avoid pride. Proverbs 16 and 18 and 21 all warn us about the dangers of pride. It says that pride is an abomination to God and that pride precedes destruction. There's only certain things that are categorized as abominations, but pride is one of them. And pride is one of those root sins that so many other sins come out of. And so when you feel pride in your heart, you better perk up and pay attention to that and deal with it as soon as possible. Pride is like a cancer in your soul that will cause other issues to stir up. It's an abomination. It actually leads to destruction. If we had the clarity of thought to realize, I feel proud about this, I'm just a few steps shy of destruction. If we would remind ourselves of God's word, which goes back to filling our hearts with God's word, then we would realize when we start to get puffed up and arrogant and prideful, we're just a few steps away from being destroyed. Probably self-inflicted destruction. So when you feel that pride, you better check yourself or let the Holy Spirit check you. Okay, Lord, I need humility. You know, the Bible actually says in James and First Peter, I think, and several other places, humble yourselves before God. So whose responsibility is your Humility yours humble yourselves oh god humble me he's like i told you to do that i told you to humble yourself don't leave your humility you know as something that you're going to leave up to god when god's already left it up to you humble yourselves under god's mighty hand and if you won't humble yourself i know some people that will humble you fifth Embrace discipline. Proverbs 23:12. I love this because I like discipline. Apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. Apply your heart to discipline. So discipline does not mean spanking, yelling, you're grounded, you don't get dessert. Discipline is making a disciple. That's what the word disciple comes from. Discipline is the result of vision in a person's life. Uh, Mike Bickle says it this way. Most people don't have a laziness problem. They have a vision problem. Because they don't have vision, they live undisciplined lives. Or they don't make the hard choices. They don't practice self-restraint. They don't... uh, invest in the future even if it costs them something in the present if there's no vision so we we think that undisciplined people often we think that they're lazy they're not they're probably not lazy i mean maybe they are lazy. there are, there is a real thing is laziness but let's give people the benefit of the doubt it's not a laziness issue it's a vision issue i don't know why would i save up for the future why would i sacrifice today for a better tomorrow when i don't expect there to be a tomorrow you know why would i make a, a wise decision now if I have no vision for the future. So discipline requires focus. Discipline, one of the expressions of it or manifestations of discipline is to establish rhythms and practices based around personal values. To live a disciplined life looks like establishing some rhythm. And I would also say, if I can be very, very practical, right now, we all could benefit from a little rhythm. Because the world is chaotic right now and there's very little rhythm and routine to the world. As we go into these dark winter months, can I encourage you to establish some rhythm based around personal values? So I'll give you an example. I have three core values. I know this sounds really nerdy that I pray through and talk about on a regular basis. Intimacy with God, Christ-centered family, and effective ministry. I need to establish rhythms around those three values. So intimacy with God, a rhythm centered around intimacy with God would mean I'm gonna spend time with God every day. I'm gonna establish a rhythm that permits me to do that. So it might mean I don't get to do other things, right? I have a personal value of Christ-centered family, which means I need to establish a rhythm of being with my kids so there's a particular time of the day that I need to be done with work. And when I go home, work is done, right? I'm establishing a rhythm, because I want a Christ-centered family. I value effective ministry, so I need to establish a rhythm that allows me to be effective in the ministry that I perform. You know, And so I have a really, I don't know, pretty regimented week, how I work on my sermon, and there's a rhythm to that. Now, rhythm works for me. I got, You guys all know I'm rhythmic. Like, I have rhythm. You understand that, naturally. Um, so it's just you have to establish those things now your rhythm doesn't have to look like other people's but it should be based around some core values that you've derived from the bible if you value prayer you need to establish a rhythm for prayer if you value generosity and giving if you value evangelism if you value your spouse if you value you know these things establish rhythms that allow you to participate in those things to the best of your ability so that's embracing discipline the establishment of rhythms is embracing discipline finally how do we guard our heart or watch over our heart we practice contentment just a few verses later proverbs twenty-three seventeen: do not let your heart envy sinners but live in the fear of the lord always practice contentment In order to practice contentment, in order to to make sure your heart isn't envying sinners, you can't always be watching what they get. Because then you think, well, I could get that. I mean, this week was almost a perfect example of that. Just bust into a store and take what you want. I mean, the the spirit behind that kind of behavior uh, violates this passage. The envy of sinners, you know, and the envy of sinful gain. And so the answer to that is contentment. And so, rather than envying, we are grateful and content with what God has given us. Lord, I'm grateful for what You've given—the the place that I live, the income that I do have. Even if I could use more, I'm grateful for what I have. Uh, the health that I have—even though my health might not be perfect—the health I'm, I am alive, I am above ground. And so, practicing. Contentment and gratitude, an expression of contentment that would be helpful over the next few months is rest or Sabbath. One of the main things that keeps people from rest is lack of contentment. Got to make more money, got to have more stuff, got to get more things, work harder, got to bring more stuff in. I'm just not happy with what I have. I'm not happy with my house. I'm not happy with my car. I'm not happy with this or that. So I don't need a day off or I'm not going to take a day off or I'm going to work 80 or 90 hours because i got to get this stuff. Contentment says I'm okay with the stuff I have so I'm going to honor God by taking a day off. I'm going to practice Sabbath. I've talked for years here about the importance of Sabbath and taking a regular day once every seven days for rest and recreation in your life. Uh, The reality is God has designed you for that anyway. So once you start racking up seven, eight, nine, ten straight days, you're not even operating at your full capacity anyway. You'd be better off taking a nap and taking a day off because you'll actually perform better if you've had a day of refreshment and a day to rest. And as we go into... I feel like we're going into another next chapter here as we go into this next chapter I think this is going to be vitally important for many of us and that day of rest is probably means a day of potentially no news no social media just unplug from all of it for a day listen the world's going to keep going without you you don't you're not required to make the world work in fact, the world seems to have gotten worse since most of us came around. So you can take that day to unplug, connect with God. It's good for your soul and it helps you watch over your heart. I've taken, this is just a personal thing, I don't know why, I've taken to, my, on my day off, I just want to sit in a dark room for a couple hours. I pull, I'm like a, turning into a vampire, I think. I pull the shades I just want to sit in the dark for a few hours, you know, while my kids are doing school at home so it's nice and peaceful. But I'm not suggesting you need to do that, but like whatever helps you recuperate from the week, do that. So that's how we can watch over our heart. Fill it with God's word, trust God, experience joy, aim, uh, sorry, aim at joy, avoid pride, embrace discipline, be content. And then there is this one final practice we're going to do today, which is to take communion. Because there's an important aspect of communion where we are told to examine ourselves. It's actually Jesus' not only permission but command to begin this process of watching over our heart. On your way in today, you likely received uh, communion elements. If you did not receive one and you need one, could you raise your hand and Anna will distribute those. If you need a communion cup, raise your hand. So we're going to read our communion uh, declaration that we read as a church. First, I want to ask, go ahead and open up your communion elements. We are becoming professionals at this now. The wafer represents Jesus' body, which was broken for us. The cup represents Jesus' blood of the covenant, new covenant, that was shed for us. Now, as a congregation, we like to read a declaration that's very, very tightly based on 1 Corinthians 11, which is where Paul gives kind of the premier instruction on communion in the New Testament. We're going to read this together, and then we're going to take communion. But before we take it, there's going to be a time for examination. Okay? So would you mind, uh, well, you can stay seated because we're going to take some time. I want you to be comfortable. Let's read this together from the screen before we take communion we believe that the lord jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me we believe that in the same way after supper he took the cup and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me We declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So the team's gonna lead us in a moment, but before you take the bread and the cup, examine yourselves. Even ask Jesus, Lord, show me my heart. I I wanna watch over my heart. What's the stuff that I need to bring up to the surface for you to deal with today? Once you've done that, you are free to take the elements as you're prepared at your uh, at your preparation. Jesus, we bless these elements. We know that they are a means of grace to us that we can encounter you and experience you in a real way. I pray that you would use communion as a way to watch over our hearts and examine us in Jesus' name.
1: my heart, Lord He is my heart, Lord He is my heart, Lord Speak what is true He is my heart, Lord Here's my heart, Lord Here's my heart, Lord Speak what is true Cause I am found I am yours I am loved I'm made pure I have life, I can breathe I am healed, I am free Cause you are strong, you are sure You are alive you endure You are good
0: you to watch over your heart as you see stuff in the local news pay attention to how your heart responds to that when we wake up wednesday morning and get some sort of news about an election pay attention to how your heart responds to that and don't let your heart be troubled When God shows you your heart, bring those things to him and ask him to recalibrate. Jesus is the only one that can heal and restore broken, deceitful, wicked hearts. Is the last thing I'll say I, th- I think right now Jesus is he is not looking for people that are going to raise their voice and beat their chests and shout in anger he is looking for tears he is looking for Christians who will be broken who will weep not who will scream and shout but who will break over everything that's going on. So Jesus, I ask that we would be those people, the ones that line up with your heart, the ones that can... Lord, what I wouldn't give to see a candidate cry, what I wouldn't give to see a mayor cry... does feel like the only ones that cry are the ones that are not in power. So Lord, we want to lo- align with that. We want to be where your heart is on this. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to stick around and say hello. See you next week. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.